This message is framed in war talk. In Genesis chapter 3, God the Father spoke and said that there would be enmity between you and the offspring that were to come. War changes everything. History tells us at a time of war, comfort is gone. Supply chains aren't merely interrupted, they are redirected. They're moved to mission critical. And sacrifices are made that impacts, that impacts and takes lives. Future plans and possibly dreams of couples being together are forever changed. Between the raindrops of this drippy weekend, Julie and I took a walk along the river walk in Altoona and saw the marvelous memorials that are being constructed and that are in place. And there is a holy scene, if you will, a moving scene of a sculpture of a young widow. You can see her wedding ring kneeling with a folded flag given to her in honor of her husband who has been lost. It seemed like a holy moment as I watched that. War changes everything. Last week, as I pulled up USA Today, it's my favorite newspaper simply because of the sports section, what came as the lead story was the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia that had started in 2014. And as we were very well aware, in March of 22, for 15 months, it's been going on. And it just recurred to me, like, oh my word, so many lives have been impacted. The heartache of lives that, that happened because of war. And then last Sunday, as I was doing my devotions on Sunday morning, on Sunday morning, I often use Prayer Point by Samaritan's Purse. I've been doing it for a number of years. On the very front cover, it reminded me, restoring joy to war victims in Iraq. It continues. And so this morning, as we continue in our series that we do after Easter, entitled, Can We Talk? We're going to talk about temptation and frame it in war talk. As I said before in the past two messages, gone are the good old days in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We get the good old days by the word good that's repeated repeatedly in Genesis 1. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And it was very good when Eve came to Adam. It was very good. But it all changed in Genesis 3. And the good old days aren't just gone, but they are cursed. And the impact of that curse is felt because of the enmity and the war that is going on. The book of Ephesians tells us this. The Apostle Paul writes this. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't fight against the press. We don't fight against political agenda. But he goes on to list four levels. And each one has power behind it. We fight against rulers, against authorities, against powers of darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. If we could face, if we could see for just one nanosecond the invisible battle going on now, right now, happening now, who could stand against that? Answer, the one who rests in Christ and all the resources he gives and all the promises he pours out. So this message, can we talk about, is going to be based on three things. First of all, it's not immune to our Savior. Our Savior himself was tempted in every way. How did he face temptation? He could have used his glory. He did that one time. He showed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, did he not? 
But he faced temptation the same way that we are to face temptation. And we're going to talk about that. Very simple. Very simple. He used scripture. And if that's the only thing you get out of this message, that would be considered a win. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to go to school on confirmation. You maybe never went to confirmation before, but Jesus had something to say about temptation. I use this model when I teach confirmation. I teach the Lord's Prayer, and it's coded. It's plates. If you can't see it from way over there, the bottom is our Father in heaven, and it's literally painted red for this one reason, because God loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life. And so each of the plates, each of the boards, represents a template or what's called a petition. And when it comes to the temptation, it is silver. And here's the reason why. Those of you fishermen, you'll really like this part of the sermon. The word tempt means to lure, like a fish. And I had a pastor friend called me this weekend, and he... uh, He said, what are you preaching on this weekend? I said, temptation. He said, Kirk, what would it be like if when we prayed the the Lord's Prayer, we would pray it this way, and lead us, pause, not into temptation. So the second thing that we're going to do in this message is we're going to go to school. You've never been to confirmation class before. If that wasn't part of your history, welcome to class. And the third thing that we're going to do is we're going to just simply ask this question, where's the hope? Because when I say the word temptation, boom, there might be a ton of stuff that came to your mind. So how do I live with temptation? How do I battle temptation? So here's the story before we pray. Hope this encourages your soul. Are you a counter? Do you count stuff? My wife is the check. She she writes the bills for our family, and she makes sure that every dollar, every cent is accounted for. My claim to fame is I've never bounced a check. But Julie wants to know to the penny. Are you a, is that the kind of person you are? Well, there was a little boy who was like that. A little boy who was like that. He loved to count. He counted his socks. He counted the peas on his plate to make sure he didn't get more than his siblings. And so he began to ask some questions. One day he asked his daddy, Daddy, does, does God count? And his answer was, of course he counts. Every hair? Every hair, the father answered. What else does God count? The father said, when we get sad or hurt and we cry, God counts our tears. Every one of them, every tear, the father answered. And then the little boy thought for a minute. And he said, is there anything that God does not count? The father thought for a while and he said, yes, there is one thing God does not count. The little boy said, what doesn't he count? And the father walked the little boy down the hall and he pointed to a cross on the wall. And the father said to him, on the day Jesus died, God stopped counting your sins. He added them all up and he gave them to Jesus and he will never count them again. The little boy said, every sin? sin?" Yes, every single one. The apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. This is the one we go to in prayer. This is the one that we confess our sins. This is the one that we throw ourselves on, the one who does not count. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, Holy King, 
We come into your presence as sinners, broken and rebellious. Within ourselves, we are proud and envious, corrupt and immoral. We, have, we wear filthy rags of sin in thought, word, and deed, and you are just to condemn us and to separate us from you, except for Jesus. You sent him to rescue and redeem us and win us back, and he lived amongst us, teaching, healing, then dying and rising again. And all, and all he claimed, it's true. And all the things that Jesus taught, they're true. All things are new because of Jesus. So we come into your holy presence and we confess our sins. And with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I invite you to do that now, my friend. Confess what you know. Admit. Don't hide what he knows. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray to him now. On the full authority of Scripture and on what Jesus did on the cross, hear these words. You are forgiven. Your sins are paid for, and they are not counted against you. So now, Father, as this bride called Bethesda gathers, give us ears to hear. Give us a truth nugget to walk into our souls this week. Give us a gospel word to lodge itself into our minds. May we, we leave this sanctuary in this space and we enter a war zone space. We are desperate for you to speak to us. Come and be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with this as we talk about temptation that Jesus gets it. A perfect place to start about temptation is talking about Jesus. Why is that? The book of Hebrews gives us this powerful word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. The verse is there. One commentator said, the note of sympathy is a resemblance like all priests, one who cares, one who empathizes. But look at also what this priest has done. But we do have one, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You might think that's a crazy place to think, to talk about temptation with Jesus. Well, the scriptures tell us that he's been tempted in every way. Well, what does tempting mean? Well, the word is the word called pyrodzo. Think of pi, rod, zo. And there's two ways that the word can be used in the scriptures. One, to be tested, like Abraham was tested with Isaac, very famous story. Or one is to be tempted, to be seduced or enticed. Or they can be used simultaneously at the same time. You may say, well, that helps a lot. Thanks a lot. Context is key. Context is key. In order to know if it's tested or tempted, you have to look at the context. Now, what's interesting is the book of Matthew chapter 8 tells us that Jesus took on all affirmities, all sin, all diseases, and he fulfills Isaiah 53 when he is in the middle of a healing ministry. Think of that. Think of that. He's tested and tempted in every way. And imagine, just, just for a moment, imagine just for a moment that the divine sinless one, Jesus, has the possibility and the liability of giving into sin. 
of giving into the devil, of giving into what's culturally allure. Just for a minute, imagine evil in the Godhead. Satan and God are not equal, they're adversaries. Satan is not on the same equal. Satan's equal is an angel, not God. But what would happen if evil could impregnate the Trinity? That's what's at stake when Jesus is tempted, enticed, seduced in the desert. So I want to encourage you to open up a copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It's in the Pew Bible on 829. Matthew 4, 1 through 13. If you have your own copy of the scriptures, you can follow that. Uh, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke, all record the temptation of Jesus. We're going to read Matthew's chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And then I want to ask you this question. Have you ever fasted for 40 days? Man, I, I think I've maybe met just a few people that have fasted for 40 days. I've done a several days, but I've never done 40 days. And the very first temptation of Jesus goes like this. Can you smell it? Forty days without food, and the first one is he smells fresh bread. I'm trying to lose weight. Bread does not help. I'm a bread guy. Forty days, first temptation of Jesus. What do you think that bread smelled like? Think it was good? Oh, you bet. That's the setting. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, seduced, enticed. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You better believe he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And then Jesus answered, same way we can. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so they will not strike your foot against his stone. What did you notice on the first two temptations? How did Jesus answer? With scripture. With scripture. And then the third one is just absolutely amazing. It says this, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the splendor. All this I will give to you and if you bow down and, if you bow down and worship me, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. That third temptation is absolutely mind-boggling. Satan used all his demonic powers and showed Christ the riches and the splendors and the honors and the pleasures of the world. As one commentator say, he showed him the great and opulent cities, sumptuous Buildings, costly attires, pomp and splendor. He displayed to Christ's view all the triumphant scenes that could furnish. And this was not one after another. It was all of them at the same time. His splendor, 
in power. It wasn't just Rome. It was all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus answered him with scripture. Dr. Evie Hill was a wonderful African-American pastor who spoke often at Promise Keepers. Maybe some of you heard him. In 1993, he was in Boulder, Colorado, and he gave, it was supposed to be like a half-hour, 40-minute talk, and it lasted for five minutes. It's not that he didn't do his homework, but he said, how did Jesus respond? He hit him. 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 Again and again and again, he hit him. And this stadium full of men yelled back, hit him, hit him, hit him, and Dr. Hill was done in five minutes. That must have been awesome to be there. Luke's account tells us, adds a phrase that's not here. It says, at an opportune time, Satan came and tempted him. So are you saying that there were other temptations of Jesus? Yeah. That's what the scriptures say, at an opportune time, at a kairos time. What were some of those times? Well, in John 14, 30, Jesus said, I will not say much more to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of the world is coming. He, has not, he does not hold over me, but he comes so that you may know that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, the same word is used. Watch and pray, Jesus says to his disciples, so that you will not fall into temptation for an evil hour is coming. The Son of Man will be handed over. Opportune time. It's uh, easy to deduce if you think about it. Satan did much to excite the Pharisees and the Sadducees to entangle and trap and catch Jesus. You catch that when you read the Gospels. And then what about the mocking and the spitting and the hitting? Do you think you're the king of the Jews? Where is your Hosanna now? War changes everything. So it's proper to ask the question, why tempt or test it all? Why doesn't God just remove it? If God loves us so much, why doesn't he just remove temptation altogether? Wouldn't that be great? Well, death is the closing day of temptation for the follower of Jesus. The perfect Adam, which was Jesus, the second Adam, which was Jesus, the last Adam, which was Jesus, was tempted and tested in every way, yet was without sin. And we receive his perfection and his spirit, the word of God in us, and then we are given God's word to instruct us, or what has been called to catechize us. To instruct us and to catechize us. So this is just a brief lesson on confirmation. Maybe this was not your tradition growing up, but I hope this helps you. It was helpful to me. The catechist engages in catechesis, which uses a catechism to catechize the catechum. How was that? I'll say that again. The catechist engages in catechesis with, when using the catechism to catechize the catechum. That means nothing to me, Pastor Kirk. What does that mean? Well, here's the first word. The catechist is a pastor or leader or teacher. The catechist is a form of teaching or instruction, of reciting memory work, and it can be good or it can be boring. That happens a lot. The catechism is a book which is usually question and answer format in summary principles. To catechize is 
four important points. Usually, excuse me, four usual key doctrines, which are the important points. Usually catechism refers to how to pray the Lord's Prayer. What does God's Word say, the Ten Commandments? How do we know what a Christian really, really, really is like and believes, the, Apostle Paul, the Apostles' Creed? And fourthly, how do we receive God's mercy and grace, sacraments or ordinances? And the catechism is one being instructed. And in our tradition, that's generally <clears throat> middle school to upperclassmen. Now, it's not just the Lutheran church that has a catechism. After the Reformation, Luther introduced a question and answer format. It was supposed to be done in the home, but there's more than one catechism. Obviously, we use Luther's catechism here at Bethesda, but there are other popular famous ones called the Westminster Catechism. The Anglicans have the Book of Common Prayer, and, and Baptists have them, and Catholics have them. I have a young pastor friend of mine who uses a newer one. This came from Tim Keller's ministry called the New City Catechism, and basically he said to me, it's really good. There's a few things that we differ on, namely the ordinances, but with our family, they've got two daughters that are tremendous athletes, and then a little guy who's like in about fifth grade, and he said, you know how life is. It's just nuts. How are we supposed to figure this out, Kirk? And so they just take one question. Here's a question they use. What does the law of God require? Answer, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. He says it's really quick, it's really easy, and we talk about it all week. And I thought, okay, that works. So let's walk through a catechism class. And those of you who are ushers, if you can help me now, if you did not get a bulletin insert, um, this next part of the sermon is going to be super boring. So just raise your hand. The guys will come down the aisle. Just raise your hand. You need this because we're going to walk through this. We're going to walk through it together. This is what we teach our middle school students in confirmation. If you need one, just raise your hand, and uh, you won't be volunteering for anything other than to get a bulletin insert. Anybody need one? Okay. So here's what we know. Thanks, guys. Lead us not to temptation. What does this mean? This is the explanation. And if you don't have an insert, let's read it together. This is the catechism. Lead us not to temptation. This is the explanation. Let's read that in italics type. On your mark, get set. Let's read. God tempts no one to sin, but we pray in this petition that he would so guard and preserve us that the devil, the world, and our human nature may not deceive us, not lead us into error and unbelief, despair, and other great and shameful sins. But when tempted, we may finally prevail and gain the victory. Now, once again, in a catechism, they do questions and answers and usually the question is followed by an explanation, short explanation, and then followed by scripture. Many of them have two verses. I just had to cut it to, in order to fit it on the page. So first one, what kind of temptation do the Bible speak about? The Bible speaks of two kinds. Talked about that. Trials and tests, which come to me to strengthen my faith. And there are the enticements to do evil, which come to me from Satan, the world, and my own human nature. In what ways is the word temptation used in the sixth petition? It's used... What does it say? The word temptation means enticements to do evil. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4. How does Satan tempt you? Question 318. Satan tempts me by trying to deceive me into distrusting God. Pause. Last week we talked about deconstruction. 
the deconstruction of our faith. And someone came up to me afterwards and they said, Pastor Kirk, do you, real, do you remember what the first deconstruction was? And I went, oh, nuts, I didn't say that in the sermon. And they said, uh, the first deconstruction was in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Did God really say? That was the first deconstruction. Question 3, 319, how does the world tempt you? The world tempts me by pressures, intimidation, enticement, and bad examples to live for myself without considering God or his word. Did God really say? Look at what the verse says, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Again, usually there's a couple verses. I just chopped it down for our sermon. What do you mean by the world? Question 320. The world is not the physical world in which I live, but the satanic kingdom made up of all who oppose God and which is ruled by Satan. We'll see this verse again. Ephesians 6:12. I referred to this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but there are the four underline them. The rulers against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's why this message is framed in war talk. Question 321. How does your human nature tempt you? My own human nature tempts me by evil desires of all kinds. James 1.4. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. What do you mean by human nature? By human nature, question 322, I do not mean my physical body, which is created by God, but my inner self, which is fallen and naturally wants to sin. And there's the verse from Romans 8, 5. Question 323, can we ever be free from temptation in the world? Man, I wish that answer was better. There it is. No. Not as long as Satan, the world, and my own human nature tempt me to sin. So, question 324, how can you prepare yourself to face temptation? I can prepare myself to face temptation by hiding God's word in my heart, by praying, by occupying myself with worthwhile activities, by feeding my mind with good and creative ideas, and choosing friends who are good examples. Now, there's a typo here, but this is one of the home run verses. I'm going to refer to this. Memorize this. Emboss this on your heart. Tattoo it on your, in your mind. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, Paul's talking, or seen in me, Paul's talking, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I love this verse. Six adjectives. Two nouns and one verb. All of those, true, noble, what, right, those are adjectives. Excellent and praiseworthy are nouns. Male and female nouns. And think about such things as the actions. When will you be free from temptation? I'll be free from temptation when I die and I'm at home in heaven with God. Yeah! Yeehaw! Revelation 21.4. They'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
So last one, real practical. What can you do when you're tempted? Catechism lists out three things and we'll review these. I can remember that God is all-powerful and he loves me and has promised never to leave me. Memorize this one. No temptation has seized you except what's common to man and God's faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you could bear, but when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Do you get that? He'll provide a way out so you can stand up. Be on your guard, number two. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Finally this. I can walk daily in the light of God's word and defend myself with it. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Temptation looks different for everyone. Sloth, envy, gossip, marital apathy, laziness, lust, depression, anxiety, anger, fear, cutting, gluttony, nightmares, doubts, unending comparison. All of these. Those are just 15. Last month, I met with a young man who's battling the temptation of lust. And as he looked at me, I said, keep fighting. You are in a war, but it's worth fighting against. Don't give up. So the question is, where is the hope? Here's the hope. One, it would be remiss of me if I did not tell you this, to fight temptation, the practical step. You must have a vibrant, robust, rhythmic scripture intake, including scripture memory. We, we sang the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We read Psalm 31. Did you pick up all of those word pictures that were in the call to worship? Fortress, refuge, strong tower. There are strong verses that are printed right there for you. Strong verses like Philippians 4, 8, and 9, and 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Paraphrase on them. Rewrite them. Read them in different translations. Get them into your bloodstream. Number two, you must be involved in a Christian community, in a life group, in a Bible study. There's a difference between being alone and solitude. You need face-to-face time with God's people. And those of you who are watching or listening, please hear this as an invitation, as not in guilt, but that. But here, you need time in worship too. You need worship time and corporate prayer and taking the sacraments. And yes, using your tithe and offerings. But your gifts are needed. The Bible says you are a part of the body of Christ and we miss your body part. We're walking with a limp because you're not here. Please hear that, not in a guilt bomb way, but in a desperate way to say, we miss you. And finally this, where's the hope of temptation? Put the armor on every day. Your victory is not manning up, powering up, or getting strong, but gearing up. As our children were in our home, we would walk through the armor of God every day. I put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit. That in itself is a message all by itself for a series. But do it. But do that. 
How can I fight temptation? God has given you his armor. So let me close with an uh, illustration. I said at the last service, someone came up to me last week and said, man, Pastor Kirk, you've had some really hard messages these last two weeks. And I said, well, next week, it's an easy message called God Loves Puppies. Nobody's going to get mad, okay? And we got tons of pictures on there. So I thought, I said that, I probably should have a dog illustration. So Alan, if you'll just help me for a second. I've used this illustration. Just hold this, okay? So in, in the house that we uh, ra basically raised our kids in, um, we would have our kids uh, walk our dog around a block. We, we, we're on our second Shih Tzu right now, but our first dog was Zoe, and uh, we would walk our dog around this block, and, uh, in the, and it was a safe neighborhood and all that kind of thing. But there was one particular dog on our block that was very intimidating. I forgot the dog's name, so I called all three of my kids, and instantly they went, Tucker, Dad, duh. And I couldn't remember. But Tucker's owner was retired military, and uh, he had this cool, white, wavy hair. It was just elegant. He looked just so dignified. And here's what he did with Tucker. He put uh, a leash of Tucker. Tucker was a, a brown lab. He put the leash, uh, and Alan is representing an SUV. That's how buff he looked, by the way. But yeah, He put the leash on the, on the hitch, and he stretched out Tucker's leash just shy of the sidewalk. And when we would walk Zoe around the block, Tucker would be sleeping, but kind of like with one eye out. And as soon as we would come, kaboom! Kaboom, kaboom. And we had little Zoe. I mean, she was like this. And it was super intimidating for our kids the first time when we moved into the house because Tucker would come, would come and come and then hold on to that good strong. And then boom, just like that, he couldn't get to the sidewalk and the collar would yank. And sometimes he would go, Tucker! And we're going, Tucker. And we had to tell our kids, Again and again, stay on the sidewalk and you'll be safe. Here you're, here you're safe. You're protected. Tucker can't get you. He can't get our dog. He's not going to hurt you. But he looks so intimidating. You bet he does. Thank you. God has given you his armor. He's given you his word. He's given you us, the body of Christ. This is how we fight temptation. And you'll have it. You'll have it until your last breath. When are you done with temptation? <sighs> when we're finally home. That's the good news, amen? Father in heaven, you know our stories. You know what we are tempted by. And in a matter of just a few minutes, a few hours, at the end of the day, we'll be tempted again. But you've given us equipment. You've given us one another. We're not a perfect church. We're broken people with our sins not counted against us because of Christ. And you've given us the power of your life-giving word. Thank you. That's enough.